You're listening to Hardwired with Jeff Wickwire. Here's what's coming up in today's edition. Do, 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 don't, don't, don't. Now, however, the schoolmaster is not needed because faith has come, explains Paul. Like Abraham, we are justified by faith. It's not do, 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 don't, don't, don't. Go here, go there, don't this, don't that. Do this, do that. It's no longer that. It is, I believe you, righteous. I believe you, justified. I believe you, saved. Have you ever experienced religions that seem to be only about the rules? Have you been turned off from going to church because it sounds like people who are oppressed from being themselves? Today in his message, Pastor Jeff wants you to know that this misconception couldn't be further from the truth about the heart of God. He doesn't want to put rules on you to keep you in chains, but instead wants to set you free through the power of His grace. Surrender your heart to Jesus and be liberated. Well, let's join Pastor Jeff in the book of Galatians chapter 3 as he continues his message, The Abrahamic Covenant. Believers are of the seed of Abraham. They are the seed of Abraham. Verse 6 and 7 says, Just as Abraham believed God, and read it with me, everybody, it was accounted to him. What does that mean? It means that God said, You are righteous, Abraham. I declare you righteous. How? By faith. What happened when you and I believed the gospel? God declared us righteous. He made him to be sin who knew, knew no sin, that we might become, what everyone, the righteousness of God by faith. So God has given to us his righteousness and he has justified us. We have been declared righteous. What an incredible blessing. Now, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And Paul is going to drill this into the Galatian church over and over again, because what's happened to them? Judaizers have come in, snuck in, infiltrated that church with false doctrine. What was the false doctrine? You've got to mix works with faith. You will not be saved only by faith. You've got to mix works, Old Testament works with your faith, or you're not going to be saved. They're called Judaizers. I've told you that every cult in America requires that you and I do something in order for our salvation to be complete. They, it, it's, a, it's a works doctrine. Every cult takes away from the doctrine of grace and faith. Every cult, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, you name it, I don't care who it is, they require you to do certain things or you will not be saved. Not Christianity. Christianity is salvation by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. It is a what? Gift. Say with me, gift. Gift. Come on, everybody. Gift of God. It's a gift. You say, well, well then where do works come in? Works don't save you and me. Works affirm that we are saved. Because once you get saved, what you do with your time, your body, your thoughts, your life changes. And God involves you and I in good works, good works that we were ordained to walk in before the world was even formed. Isn't that amazing? So that's where works come in. But Paul's whole point is, no, 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 you don't have to mix works with faith to be saved. So therefore know that only those who are of faith 
are sons of Abraham. So we are Abraham's seed in that our salvation came the same way his did, by faith. Abraham was saved when he believed God. You were saved when you believed God. You heard, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And when you heard that, something in you reached up, and by faith you believed it, and God said, righteous, forgiven, justified, glorified, done. And he sent his spirit to live inside of you, and he changed you, gave you a whole new nature. And And then after that happens, well, what you used to love, you hate, and what you used to hate, now you love. Learning the Bible right? Now, after having reviewed the conversion of Abraham, his conversion, Paul now turns his attention to the covenant or the contract with Abraham. And he begins with a contract principle. Now, this is very simple. I want you to look at verse 15. He's going to use an earthly illustration to make a point. He says in verse 15, brethren, I speak in the manner of men. He said, I'm going to talk in a way you can understand me is what he's saying. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. What's he talking about there? He's talking about a simple legal contract. He uses an everyday illustration. When a contract is drawn up in proper legal form and duly signed, sealed, and delivered, it becomes binding on both contracting parties. We've all done this with a house, with a car, with something. They sign, you sign. Once you both signed and both parties have said yay and amen, then you have a contract, okay? It cannot be canceled or changed by somebody else. Thank God. This is the principle behind a contract. Once two parties have signed it, no outsider who doesn't happen to like the contract can come in and say, wait a minute, I'm going to change this contract. They can't do it, okay? It can't be done. Now that's, he says, when changes are made in a contract, both parties must agree or it cannot be done. God has adopted the same principle in his dealings with men. He cuts contracts or what we call covenants. I got to thinking it'd really be better to call the Old Testament the first covenant and the New Testament the second covenant. Or we could say the first contract and the second contract because that's what they were. Now, in light of this principle, we find in the Bible eight major contracts or covenants. Let me show you what they were real quickly, that God has cut with man. Because right now, you and I, we're under a contract with God. It's called the contract of grace. Aren't you glad it's grace? But let's look at some of the ones that preceded us. The, The very first one was the Edenic covenant. And the Edenic covenant governed the terms whereby Adam and Eve could live in the Garden of Eden. And what was that agreement? Don't touch that tree. You can have anything else you want, but don't touch that tree. If you touch that tree on that day, you will die. That was the contract. And they breached the contract. And we all have suffered for it. So that was the Edenic covenant, first one. Then came the Adamic covenant. And that detailed the new terms governing the life of sinful man on God's earth. The Edenic was before the fall. The Adamic was after the fall. And what was the contract? Hey, by Adam, by the sweat of your brow, now you're going to work. And Eve, hate to tell it to you, you and all your daughters, you're going to give birth in pain. How many of you ladies can say, that contract's true? I'm so glad I'm not a woman because I've seen them have those babies. That's tough. 
My wife almost killed me when she was having her baby because I, I was saying, come on, breathe. What we learned, and it all went out the door. All of the Lamas and all that breathing stuff, it all went out the door. I mean, it, it really did. She just commanded me to bring her some ice and shut up. <laughs> all right. But I digress. Now, the third Bible contract is the Noahic, Noahic covenant, the covenant God cut with Noah, spelled out the new conditions that were to prevail following the flood. He told Ham, Shem, and Japheth, you know, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, and I'm going to put a rainbow in the sky, and I promise you I'm never going to destroy the earth with a flood again, and all those things he said. That was the Noahic covenant. Then came the Abrahamic covenant, opened new vistas of grace and promise, and it is the covenant with which Paul is most concerned, because this is the way he's going to unravel the argument of these Judaizers, by going to the Abrahamic covenant. Now, uh, the fifth covenant was the Mosaic covenant, and that's also reviewed by Paul, and, and in chapter three, he's going to continually contrast the Abrahamic with the Mosaic covenant, and he's going to show you why the Mosaic covenant did not annul the Abrahamic covenant. That we did not move from faith to works when the Mosaic covenant was established. It did not overshadow and do away with salvation by faith. So keep that in mind. Now the sixth one was the Palestinian covenant. And that spelled out the conditions and terms under which the Hebrew people could live in the promised land. And then came the Davidic covenant, and that established the prospect of the millennial kingdom. He, he told David, your, your throne is going to last forever and forever and forever. And of course, he was pointing to Christ, the seed of David. Now, uh, the millennial kingdom, and it also confirmed the promise under the Adamic covenant of a coming kinsman, redeemer, and king. And then the last one, the new covenant that we're all living in foretold in the Old Testament and ratified at Calvary, not by ink, but by God's son's blood. And that's the covenant of grace. Now, the covenant principle is basic to all of God's dealings with men. It's worth noting that from the time of man's fall, no matter what contract was in force, the basis of man's salvation remained unchanged. And what was it? God has only one way of saving men no matter what age or what contract they're under. Grace through faith on the basis of the finished work of Christ is the only way to be saved. You and I have never been able to or ever will be able to save ourselves. It will not, cannot happen. We're not able, and we're going to see that in a minute. We can only be saved by grace through faith. What's grace? Unearned favor. God saves us because he wants to. Not because we look pretty or handsome or are smart or doing good things. God looks at us fallen creatures and says, I'm going to extend grace. I'm going to reach out to you and extend grace. And when we say, yes, I receive your offer, we are saved by faith in God's terms, in God's word, in God's promises, and he declares us righteous with no works of our own at all. Now, Paul's point is that the Abrahamic covenant 
has remained in force. This is very important. The Abrahamic covenant has remained in force despite the later addition of the Mosaic covenant. Men are saved by faith just as Abraham was. Why does this matter? Because the Judaizers were coming in with the Mosaic covenant. And they were saying, you must do this, you must do that, you must this, you must that, you must not this, you must not that. And if you don't do this and don't not do that, you will not be saved. Well, Paul's going to say, that's not true. Because the Abrahamic covenant, where you're saved by faith alone, was not overshadowed by the Mosaic covenant, nor was it annulled by the Mosaic covenant. It's still salvation by faith. Aren't you glad we're saved by faith and not our works? I mean, how many of you would have gone to hell this week if based on your works? I know that's a strong, but if you just left to yourself, some of you would have slipped right on in this week. The Abrahamic covenant was absolutely unconditional. It consisted of a series of contractual promises made by God to Abraham. Now, God himself came to Abraham and here's what he promised him. I'm going to make you, Abraham, a great nation. You're going to be a great nation of people. I'm going to bless you. That was the second promise. That's good enough for me. If he just came to me and said, I'm going to bless you. And God has told me that before. I'm going to bless you. Why is he bless you in me? Because of Jesus. I'm going to bless you, he told him. Third, I'm going to make your name great. Is Abraham's name great? All right. Fourth, I'm going to make you a blessing to the whole world. How did that happen? Through Jesus Christ who came out of his lineage. Five, I'm going to bless those who bless you. Six, here's a promise. I'm going to curse those that curse you. That's a promise. I want to be in number five and not number six. Number seven, I'm going to make, uh, I'm going to make Abraham the one through whom all nations would be blessed. Eight, I'm going to give Abraham a seed as numerous as the stars of heaven. The descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people, he was the first one. We could say he was the first Semite. Nine, I'm going to emancipate that seed from enslavement in a foreign land after 400 years in the fourth generation. Of course, that was when they were in Egypt. And that seed will become very wealthy. And they did. God's judgment was promised against the nation that oppressed Abraham's descendants. It's a guarantee. Now, number 10, I'm going to allow Abraham to live to a ripe old age, and then he's going to die in peace. And that's exactly what happened. Number 11, I'm going to ensure that Abraham will inherit a land that will stretch from the Nile to the Euphrates, a land that right now our country is actively trying to force them to divide. And when you do that, there's going to be harsh judgments on you. And we will see harsh judgments falling on this country. I guarantee you, as surely as I stand here. Now, 12, it was to be an everlasting covenant. It's never going to go away. It's everlasting. It goes, it stretches into eternity. And 13, the land of Canaan in particular was the guaranteed possession of the covenant seed of Abraham. Now, Paul takes up the great features of the Abrahamic covenant by underlining first its supreme goal. Let's see what it was. Verse 16. Now, the promise was made to Abraham and to his seed, that is, son. Now, let me point out, as you look at this verse, do you see the word seed? In the original language, it's singular. 
It's not plural. It's singular. He does not say, and Paul makes the point, he does not say, and to seeds or many sons, speaking of many, but instead he says, and to your seed, singular, your son, which means Christ, Paul says. So everybody say with me, seed. Very important word in chapter three, seed. It's capitalized and it's singular. Very important we catch this. Now, for better understanding, let me just look back a moment into biblical history to the mention of the seed. Where do we first see it? Where do we first see this word? In Genesis 3.15. In the beginning, the seed was the seed of the woman. Let's look at what it says. The text reads, quote, God says to the devil, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his what? The, the spike went through Jesus' heel on the cross. Now, the word seed in this passage is singular. It's not plural. Now, we know that Eve had many children. She had a lot of children. That's the way the human race took off because in Adam and Eve's day, it was not incest. It was the only way the earth could be populated. You're looking at me like, you got to be kidding me, man. Gross. It, well, yeah, right. But back then, because people say, well, where where everybody find their wives and their husbands? Well, Adam and Eve's offspring. Okay. Now, but God is not focused on her children. All the children she had, we know they had a lot of children. He's not focused on her children, plural, but on one person that would one day be born who would bruise the serpent's head and God calls him the seed. The seed. That singular seed, says Paul, is Christ. So this is the first prophecy in the whole Bible. Genesis 3.15 is the very first Bible prophecy. I'm gonna bring forth a man devil. I'm gonna bring, he's talking to Satan, after the fall, and he says, devil, I'm going to bring forth a seed, a, a human being, and he is going to bruise your head, which means a death blow. And you are going to bruise his heel, which means you're going to hurt him, but it's not going to be a death blow. And God foretold in Genesis 3.15 the coming of Christ, both to redeem and to reign. The seed Next time we see it is shown to be the seed of Abraham. So this whole idea of a seed that's going to come forth is, a, is an ongoing theme in the Old Testament. The seed was next shown to be the seed of Abraham, restricting the promise of the coming Christ to a single, single family of the world, Abraham's family, or the Jewish people. You know, people get into a dispute these days. Jesus was white. Jesus was black. Jesus was Mexican. Jesus was all these. Let me tell you what he was. He was olive complexion. He was Jewish. And that's good enough for me. How about you? Because, he, because now we, we go from the seed in Genesis 3.15 to the seed of Abraham. And God is letting us know because with Genesis chapter 12, when we meet Abraham as Abram, and God is calling him out of Ur of the Chaldees, we are now seeing Genesis 3.15 beginning to be worked out in history. 
With the appearance of Abram, now God is working out the plan of redemption. When he called Abram, now he's going to move the seed into Abram's lineage. And he's going to be called Abraham, the father of many nations. This is why Paul points out concerning Abraham's seed, quote, I'm quoting Paul, God does not say, and to seeds, speaking of many, but instead, and to your seed, capital S, singular, which means Christ. So the seed in Genesis and Abraham's seed are one and the same. God's just working out his plan, starting in Genesis chapter 12. The first promise shows that he would be virgin born, that he'd be a member of the human race. But the next promise makes him a member of the Hebrew race through Abraham. Now later, we find the seed again, and it's shown to be the seed of David. In 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 16, you can read about it. And it shows there that he would be not only a member of the Hebrew family, but a member of the Hebrew royal family. Paul's point in Galatians 3.16 seems to be aimed at Abraham's disastrous attempt to produce the promised seed and the energy of the flesh. And that's why he's bringing the whole thing up, talking about the seed. Because you remember, Abraham got frustrated. He and Sarah could not conceive. She was barren. That was God's plan. So that when Isaac was finally born, it would be a miracle. 100-year-old man, 90-year-old woman. So Abraham said, I just can't wait anymore. I don't understand this. God, you apparently don't know what's going on. You apparently don't see that we're barren. And you promised me a child. And how can all your promises come to pass if we don't have a child? Because, Lord, not one of your promises can happen if we don't have a child. So Abraham assumed God was clueless. Anybody ever been there? And he felt that he had to tell God what was wrong. And then, and then they decided to take matters into their own hands and try to work God's plan out in the strength of the flesh. And he involved himself with the Egyptian bondwoman, Hagar. Read about it in Genesis 16. God would have none of it in the same way he will have none of you and me trying to work out his plan in the strength of the flesh. It will not happen in the strength of the flesh. Matter of fact, God will wait until your flesh is good and dead. Grace by faith. Now, our only hope was the faith which should afterward be revealed. So it was a taskmaster, but it was also a schoolmaster. It taught us. Verse 24, therefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be, say it with me, justified by faith. It constantly demanded, that is the law, do this, don't do that. Do, 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 don't, don't, don't. Now, however, the schoolmaster is not needed because faith has come. Explains Paul, like Abraham, we are justified by faith. It's not do, 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 don't, don't, don't. Go here, go there, don't this, don't that. Do this, do that. It's no longer that. It is, I believe you, righteous. I believe you, justified. I believe you, saved. It's just that simple. But let's read this together because this is really the, 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 it sums the whole thing up. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Praise God. Praise God. So in summary, the law was added through Moses, not to annul the promise made to Abraham, but to show us how helpless we are 
when it comes to meeting our obligations to God. It's also intended to teach us how great is our need of the promised seed. The chief focus of God's great promise to Abraham. And next time, we're going to see now are we the sons of God. As Christians, we know that Jesus is our Savior, but do we see it as a covenant? We go through our routines, but it's easy to forget that we've entered a covenant with Him. Today, we learn from Pastor Jeff that when you accept Jesus into your life, you walk with Him. He gave His life as a sacrifice to save the world, and He expects the same from you. Honor your covenant with Him and be used to greater His kingdom. If you have questions or comments about what you've heard today, we'd like to know. You can call or text us at the following number and share your thoughts. That number to text is 817-484-4767. Once again, that's 817-484-4767. Thanks for being a part of this ministry and helping it continue to be an encouraging and uplifting resource for you and others. Have you ever been in a situation that felt hopeless? Have you ever felt isolated with nowhere to turn? Next time on Hardwired, Pastor Jeff wants you to know that if you want to be redeemed from your mistakes and troubles, let God guide your life. It doesn't matter what your past is or what you're going through. He has always been there for you and wants to give you deliverance. Give it all to God and be set free. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for tuning in for this edition of Hardwired with Jeff Wickwire. You can listen to more messages from this and other books of the Bible by visiting hardwired.org. Join us next time to continue our study in the book of Galatians right here on Hardwired.